Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Puto Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by Carrie Clack, columnist, editorial board member. Nancy Prayer-Johnson, deputy editorial board editor. And we've talked a little bit in recent weeks about uh, what's going on in the state legislature and, and particularly regarding uh, LGBTQ issues, but we haven't really done a deep dive into it, and there is a lot happening. Um, and to kind of help us make sense of it, we have a, a special guest. Uh, Jonathan Gooch is the communications director for the uh, LGBTQ advocacy group Equality Texas, and he's also the former editor-in-chief of the Texas International Law Journal. Jonathan, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, glad to be here. Um, I guess I wanted to start, you know, it, it seems to me, and, and, and um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong in this, but it seems like the, the, um, the bills that are sort of targeting the LGBTQ community in this uh, cycle uh, during the session, uh, have either involved uh, going after drag shows, drag performances, or they're focusing on what's going on in schools, education, school books, what's being discussed in schools. And then there's also the the, the category of uh, health care for, for transgender youth. And also they've taken what was a focus on transgenders, uh, transgender individuals participating in school sports in 2021, which then they passed a law uh, really restricting that. Now they're, they're taking that to college sports. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit first about the, the drag performance issue. We've had SB 12, which was uh, sponsored by uh, Senator Brian Hughes from Mineola. And this is kind of part of a national movement. We've seen a lot of states who have, that have uh, proposed or, or uh, passed uh, anti-drag show bills this year. Uh, Tennessee has one that was uh, halted by a federal judge just about three weeks ago. But I guess I, before we get into the specifics of SB 12, I wanted to get your thoughts on, because uh, I've, I've asked myself this question, why we're seeing such an obsession with drag performances um, right now. It seems like in the last couple of years, there have been so many stories about, you know, about uh, backlash against drag performances, and particularly if you know, children are present um, in various states. Why do you think this is happening right now? It's a great question because I really don't know. Um, it's, 
puzzling to me because I can't make sense of the logic that's offered mm-hmm. for it. It doesn't seem to match um, what's actually happening, right? Drag story time at a library is just a really animated performer entertaining kids by reading, which is like the most PBS style values you can have. Um, and I don't understand why we can't all be on board with those types of things. But we are seeing this more and more, and I, I, I struggle to make sense of it, but I do, I am worried about the consequences um, because we've seen that as this rhetoric about drag shows has increased, uh, so has violence. And we've been tracking anti-drag protests and violent attacks on drag in Texas, and we had 20 since Pride Month of last year through December of this year in Texas alone. And that's just alarming to me because, because I can't make sense of the logic behind the push. And then I see these real-world uh, physical acts of violence and intimidation that are happening at these performances um, that most of the time aren't geared toward children. Yeah. Most of the time, they're not. Well, that's the thing I want to ask you is if you if you look at the language of the bill, um, it's it's, uh, and I think other states have have done the same type of thing where they're saying, well, we're really really trying to protect children from sexual performances, and they uh, drag performances kind of get swept into that category. But they're saying, well, it's not specifically about that. Although, if you look at Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and his the way he's talked about SB twelve, it's it's clear that this is drag performances are are, are really. Uh, what this is all about for him. But if you look at the language of the bill and it talks about sexual performances, it you'd get the, the sense that all drag performances, anytime uh, a, a man dresses a woman or vice versa, that that is a sexually oriented performance. And as you said, I mean, that's that's really not the case. I mean, there it, it, this, drag performances kind of run the gamut what was Roland, Roland Gutierrez, um, and I think it was to Dan Patrick, I'm not, but the whole Miley Cyrus, did you see that? Uh, yeah. Like, okay, so would Miley yeah. Cyrus be able to perform and drag on stage? What was the answer to it? Uh, I don't remember the answer. Don't remember. But I think it's a fair question. Yeah, it is. Right? I mean, what is uh, stereotypically masculine dress or stereotypically feminine dress? Does Miley Cyrus even have to be in drag? Right. If she steps out in boots and jeans, yeah. is that... A cowboy outfit, right? Uh, so I don't, it's so vague. And it's alarming to think that it could intrude in all forms of performance. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't think about. I mean, drag goes back to Shakespeare. Yeah. And there are traditional mm-hmm. yeah. plays, classical plays, that include cross-dressing. Yeah, and, and th- this country is so uh, sort of... C- conflicted and, and uh, schizophrenic about this issue. I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember as a young kid, one of the most popular shows in television was Flip Wilson had a variety show. Was, I, think there were, I think there was a period when he had maybe the number two or three most popular show on network television. And pretty much every week he played a character. The, the most popular character he did was Geraldine, who was a, dressed as a woman and was very flirtatious with men. And I would watch it with my dad. And I'm, there were millions of young kids who watched and 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 laughed at that show, and Jamie Foxx not too long ago. I mean, there, there are countless on, examples. On, uh, yeah, in Living Color. Yeah. So it, it's a very strange thing, and and I think, uh, you know, you you're saying it's kind of hard to figure out what what's going on. And I agree with you. It's it's really hard to make sense of this, but I almost wonder if if it's just the drag has become so mainstream in our in our culture, and so popular, 
that that is that is creating some fear. Yeah, I think it's definitely become more mainstream. And I think that's definitely part of it, right? There's more attention on drag. Uh, RuPaul's Drag Race has won like 19 Emmys or something. So there's a lot of focus on drag. People are making money from drag. Small businesses in town are making money from drag. More people will show up. And I guess in some way I can see that it might be threatening if there's only one acceptable way to be a man and there's only one acceptable way to be a woman. Mm -hmm. And if you don't fit these very tight parameters, that can be terrifying for someone who holds a very rigid worldview. Um, But what I find scary about that is that's not someone's personal choice to live their life one way and to identify as a certain type of man or a certain type of woman. They're trying to impose that on other people. Uh, to be a sort of gender police, what constitutes appropriate clothing for a woman, for a man in a performance, and whether or not that's safe for a child to see something that challenges those stereotypical expectations. It would seem, too, uh, and I'm sure with your your legal uh, expertise, you have you thought about this. I mean, when you start getting into defining what is sexual or what creates a sexual reaction, people, yeah. it's a very slippery slope. It's a really hard thing. Uh, do we really want the government kind of trying to deal with these kinds of vague concepts? It's very vague. And I think um, to get into the details of the law on this bill, I think one of the things that's interesting to notice is the way the bill has evolved. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the first bills that Hughes uh, filed was to simply include drag performances in the sexually oriented businesses category, Mm -hmm. which would have taxed businesses for hosting drag shows. Um, And then it evolved and later became this version, which creates a new type of law we've never seen called a sexually oriented performance. There is no such thing elsewhere in the law. Right. The only thing that exists is sexually oriented businesses, which yeah. are for those are adult venues. Right. You get mm-hmm. carted at the door and you pay an additional tax when you come in. And so we've created essentially a type of gender police, this new uh, performance, sexually oriented performance that uh, is prohibited for in public. Right. Up to a four thousand dollar fine if you perform in drag in public and up to 10,000 if it's in front of a minor. Um, and that's just insane. That's insane to me. Is it your sense that this is gonna pass? I mean, it looks like that it's, it, it's, things are going in that direction. Yeah. I can't, I can't <laughs> predict the future. Yeah. I really I can't. You. I certainly hope it doesn't. Um, and I would say that um, in terms of public opinion, mm-hmm. we saw an outrageous amount of people show up at the Capitol when the drag bills were heard. Um, the the gallery was packed. Uh, people were dropping cards. There were like 800 cards dropped against the bill. Um, you had club owners too, just saying, just saying, this is bad for business. It's really bad for business. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted before we move on to to some some other topics. I wanted to, you know, in Florida, there's a similar push, and this was a, a, a quote last week on the 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 floor of the Florida House from State Representative Randy Fine, who has a bill, the, an anti drag bill there. And this, this kind of reflects, I think, a lot of the thinking that's, that's behind this effort. He says, and he's talking about the drag performer community, he says, if, if, it, if his bill, if it means erasing a community because you have to target children, then damn right, we ought to do it. So he's, he's, he's basically, I mean, the idea of targeting children, of course, is ridiculous. But um, 
but he's basically saying, we're, we're, I'm okay with erasing a community. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, one of those, uh, I was going to say rare moments, but it seems less and less rare less when less people rare. say mm-hmm. the quiet part <laughs> out loud. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, but I think we are seeing that, and I do think that is the true motive. Um, not to get too far off point, but uh, we've seen more and more extreme bills. Some of the bills that are... Uh, maybe less likely to pass, but that are starting to show the, these genocidal ideas, right? Um, not just eliminating healthcare for trans youth, yeah. but for even trans adults, mm-hmm. which is insane. Yeah. We have one of the largest LGBTQ populations in the country. And to think that all trans people in Texas couldn't get healthcare is insane. And that is tantamount to genocide. If we're talking about life-saving care and lawmakers are cutting off supply to life-saving care. They're deciding who gets to live and die. And what we're seeing is, you know, Republicans kind of defining this care as uh, as child abuse. Or something yeah. like that. I mean, that's really what's... Yeah. yeah, the child abuse notion is terrifying, which we saw first start uh, a little over a year ago when the governor issued a directive to the Department of Family and Protective Services to investigate the parents of trans kids who provide health care to their child for child abuse. Um, And those are wrapped up in so much litigation, but there are a couple key things that came out of that litigation that I think are really important. When it first went to the Texas Supreme Court, the Texas Supreme Court said, the governor doesn't have the authority to do this, right? This is beyond the scope of what the governor can do. And so now we're seeing the legislature step in. Jonathan, could you talk a little bit about uh, because I'm, sh- I'm sure there are people who who don't know some of the, you know the details behind this and maybe hear some some uh, rhetoric that might that would misinform them. When it comes to the process of of, of children getting uh, gender affirming care, yeah, um, can you talk a little bit about the, the process that parents have to go through? I mean, it, it's this is something that. Um, I mean, it's a, it, I think it's a pretty involved process, and and uh, I mean, it's done. I think um, it's it's done with real care. Uh, yeah. with, with a, you know, uh, can you talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So you're right. Gender affirming healthcare for trans young people is not really understood, and it does look different than it looks like for adults. Um, so, say you're the parent of a child who comes out to you, and they say they're trans. Obviously, the first thing you're going to do is find some experts. Uh, Maybe you come to Equality Texas or someone else who can point you to a a friendly doctor who has some sort of expertise. Um, And when we're talking about medical doctors, we're typically talking about uh, endocrine experts. And then there's also a mental health component. So before any medical plan is set up, children and their parents are meeting with doctors and mental health providers to have conversations about what this looks like. And one doctor we spoke to said that that initial screening is as rigorous in terms of the things you have to check as a as an organ transplant. They said there are that many things we want to make sure line up and are in place before we move ahead with a healthcare plan for a trans young person. But also what that healthcare looks like, I think, is often misunderstood. Because if we're talking about young children, we're just talking about mental health care, mm-hmm. using the name, pronouns that they want, and buying clothes that make them feel comfortable, which is pretty simple. What age? When you say young, what age? Um, range? There, are, there were kids at the Capitol testifying that were 8 to 10. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so kids at that age, they're wearing clothes that make them comfortable. They're using a name that they're comfortable with at school, with their teachers, mm -hmm. and pronouns. And that's pretty much it for kids at that age. When kids hit puberty is when there's more of a medical component. Uh, because puberty obviously brings a lot of physical changes. Um, and so there is something called puberty blockers, mm -hmm. which essentially give the parents and the kid a chance to hit pause on puberty uh, so that they can make long-term decisions at an older age. And that's, it's such a, it's an intensive screening process. So many professionals are involved. And really the healthcare seems so um, cautious to begin with. Right. This idea of puberty blockers is in order to make sure that everyone is comfortable with the plan moving forward and everyone has all the information they need. It's very consent oriented to make sure that um, there are no missteps. And I think that's really important because some of the disinformation we've heard spread around is not from um, some of the disinformation I, I'm struggling to d articulate this thought, mm -hmm. but so-called detransitioners who are actually suing their doctors for malpractice, mm -hmm. right? Because it's the doctor that didn't follow the standards of care that are set by the American Medical Association. So the problem isn't that there aren't we, we don't have standards. It's just that there are some doctors who maybe don't follow it, which yeah. that, that is probably true with, with all kinds of medical issues that, yeah. that, that people experience, you know, that there will be the occasional doctor who doesn't follow procedure. Which is extremely rare. And there are already laws in place that protect people right. from abuse by doctors. Um, and that's an entirely different issue. Um, but I think even our lawmakers are struggling to understand that. I know one lawmaker asked us, you know, wouldn't it be great if they were just standards of care? And there are. Yeah. There really are. So much focus tends to be, uh, when, when the, we pure political rhetoric on this, tends to be about uh, gender reassignment surgery, which I know in many cases transgender individuals do not uh, choose to have. But can you talk a little bit about the, the laws surrounding you know, age, what age is, is allowed for that? Because I think there's also some misunderstanding about that. Yeah, sorry, can you say the question again? What age sure. is allowed? Or, or, or what, what age you have to be to, to go forward if you decide you want to have gender reassignment surgery? So surgery is a complicated issue. Um, and as you say, many trans people choose not to have surgery. Um, but in general, we're talking about adults, right? That's an adult decision. Um, the type of care that young people get is this puberty blocker treatment, and maybe when they're about to graduate high school, they switch to hormone therapy. Mm -hmm. And that's typically what care looks like for young people. And there are study after study after study that show the overall improvement in wellness for these young people, which I think that's, that's what we're talking about when we say life-saving care, is because there is a mental health crisis right now for LGBTQ people. Um, specifically trans people, and especially in the state of Texas. So I believe it, according from, to the Trevor Project, 56% of trans young people in Texas seriously considered suicide in 2022. 56% is an insane number that should be zero. And we know that this type of care reduces suicidal ideation. It's as simple as that. Jonathan, not, not that there's ever been a time when the LGBTQ community isn't under attack, wasn't under attack, 
But in this current period, is there a tipping point over the past few years that has taken it to where we are now? Another great question. It's um, the, It has been an interesting journey because back when we saw the bathroom bill uh, pitched here in Texas, the business community spoke up, people overwhelmingly spoke out against it, and it was shut down. And that sort of seemed like a benchmark. It seemed like we were turning a corner where this part of the culture wars might start dying away. Um, and then we had sort of a, a moment of pause, but then this anti-trans rhetoric started coming out and we've seen this just blow up across the nation and Texas is not immune to that. Um, I can't pinpoint what did that, but I do know that there are a lot of really powerful and very well-funded organizations that are uh, involved in this. In the last election um, in November, there were flyers being distributed uh, by uh, the America First Legal Foundation that were just littered with anti-trans disinformation and attempting to tie that to Biden. Biden wasn't even on the ballot, and it was all... It was very confusing. I mean, disinformation campaigns necessarily are. And so it seems like that type of national money is also fueling some of this. Um, yeah. on, the, on the issue of, of, of school sports, um, as I mentioned earlier, we had a, a, a bill passed into law uh, in 2021, which would basically require uh, kids in school to compete in sports according to their their uh, sex birth or uh, birth sex, um, and now the we have uh, Republicans in the legislature targeting college sports. Um, I think there are many of us who look at this. It, it has been sort of uh, packaged as an attempt to protect uh, girls or women's sports. Um, I think there are many of us who look at it as kind of a. a a solution in search of a problem because I and, and along those lines I wanted to ask you all if you have uh, if Equality Texas has looked at the number mm. of transgender kids who are uh, or have been interested in participating in school sports in Texas because I you know I, I, I think a, a year or two ago we had uh, the governor of Utah who refused to sign uh, a similar bill to the one that we have in Texas and he pointed out I think there were four transgender uh, kids participating in school sports in that state at the time. Have you all been able to pin down any numbers on that? We have not been able to. Part of it is that it's uh, it's honestly just really risky for mm -hmm. trans kids sure. and uh, parents to speak about this type of thing. I do know uh, anecdotally of several young trans students that are actively participating in sports um, in uh, extracurricular capacities, right, in order to preserve, like in uh, non-school functions, in order to be able to have some sort of outlet, um, which is, uh, I think it's just so tragic to think about a child being told that they can't play a sport because of who they are. And it's so alarming that that 
idea festered enough in the Capitol building to become a law one day. And I mean, as of last year around this time, it officially went into effect, right? Um, and so it's been a full a full year now. Ideally, how would you like to see this hand either at the you know uh, high school level uh, or we could apply this to co- to college too? Um, you know, the NCA has kind of struggled with how to deal with the issue. I think that yeah. they've they've um, tried to work out uh, tests where if someone is below a certain testosterone level, then they would you know qualify for like the Olympic sports. Yeah. Uh, I think the Olympics do. Um, would something like that work in Texas, or is that a bad idea? I mean, yeah, I I know that the NCAA has tried to come up with a solution. I think what they have right now is, at the to say the very least, it's cumbersome, and so it creates these additional barriers to entry, specifically for trans people. Um, and I think that's important to realize, right? If we're talking about a level playing field then you should be able to just run on. Um, And it shouldn't be that complicated. And I also, I do recognize that there's been this seed of an idea that's been floating around that somehow this is about protecting women's sports. But there's data from the Center for American Progress that shows that states with trans-inclusive policies actually increase their participation in women's sports. Right, so there's... I, there's evidence out there that suggests being more inclusive can like raise the tide for everyone. And I hate to, to go too much into the history of, of, of women's sports in this country, but I mean, if people who who followed what's what's really transformed women's sports in this country, obviously, is Title IX, which was yeah. signed into law in 1972. And anyone who's kind of studied the history of Title IX knows that consistently we saw Republican lawmakers and uh, Republican administrations, both the Reagan administration and the George uh, W. Bush administration, tried to kind of repeal parts of Title IX because they thought that this was going to be damaging to football programs around the country. It was gonna take money away from football programs and it was gonna force schools to put all this money into women's sports. So there's been a a long pattern, Mm -hmm. uh, and again, I'm not trying to hold Current Republican lawmakers responsible for everything that their their predecessors um, did, but it, within that that party, there's been a, a consistent uh, sort of hostility to uh, the idea of, of, of funding women's sports the way Title IX prescribed. And now, when it comes to the trans issue, suddenly we're seeing some of these same uh, people in that same party talking about how they want to <laughs> save women's sports. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I think funding would be a great way to do that. If that's really <laughs> what they want to do. <laughs> um, wanted to talk with you a little bit about um, ed- education and, and how it's uh, the, the uh, legislature's handling those. This when it comes to LGBTQ issues, uh, the ACLU in in their review, and maybe you all have different numbers on this. I think they've said there are 417 bills across the country targeting LGD, LGBTQ individuals. And 283 of them uh, relate to, to education. And what we're seeing in Texas uh, is uh, kind of a Texas version of what we had in Florida, the, the, the so-called don't say gay bill, which is trying to limit discussion of uh, sexual orientation or gender identity in school. Um, we've also had the, the, the attempt to defund libraries that have uh, drag story time events. Um, when it comes to, and I don't know how you how you think the this this SB ten seventy two the uh, the the school bill is gonna is gonna fare, but 
you know, what do you, what do you make of what is being attempted here? I mean, it it, it seems to be grow out of a, a, this old idea that uh, uh, that teachers may, may be trying to to groom children. I mean, we hear that type yeah. of uh, you know that that term used a lot, and that any discussion of these issues is uh, is, is somehow part of that. Yeah. Uh, so I think. First of all, with 1072, part of uh, the evolution of this law is interesting because we saw them first attach the Don't Say Gay Bill to vouchers. Mm -hmm. And then shortly after the House said no vouchers, uh, they hijacked 1072, which did not have explicit Don't Say Gay provisions before the committee substitute. Um, So this is a bill that's been introduced time and time again that is designed to Uh, eliminate student health advisory councils in schools, which give students a way to participate um, and learn about sexual health and things like that, to take ownership of their own education in an extracurricular uh, space. Um, And so this bill has never passed because, you know, those are extremely beneficial for students. Um, But now that same language was pulled from the bill that is effectively dead and tacked onto the bottom of this bill. Um, so it, I just start by saying that to say that it really is a priority for these lawmakers to push this through uh, however they need to manipulate the system. I think it's really alarming to think about, I guess just to say explicitly what the Don't Say Gay bill is first, Um, So the Florida bill banned discussion of LGBTQ topics through third grade. The Texas bill goes through 12th grade. And that means that a high school senior will graduate without having ever had a classroom discussion about Stonewall, right? About anything that touches on queer history, the fight for LGBTQ rights, any of that, uh, along with any other type of LGBTQ story. And... I think that's doing such a disservice to our young people. Do we really want young people to first learn what it means to be trans when their coworker with whom they share a cubicle is trans? Right? That's unfair to both the student and the trans person, right? It's our responsibility to prepare Texas young young people for the diverse world. The Texas is a beautifully diverse state, and if we're not preparing young people to enter the workforce that looks like the Texas workforce does, then we've done them a disservice. Are there any real, I mean, as a former teacher, I have to say, I I don't know of any, um, but are there any real examples of grooming happening at schools? I, I'm sure there are. Like I, um, we hear horror stories all the time, right? But I actually can't think of any. Um, unfortunately, what comes to my mind is the news is littered with stories of like the cover up in the uh, Southern Baptist and all of these types of things that lawmakers have not found a way to actually prevent grooming. Um, and rather than doing that, they've they've singled out a small community and accused them of grooming uh, without any justification. Um, when we know that there are, I mean, we have a registry full of people mm-hmm. who are guilty of offenses. Why are we not studying that data to learn what we can do to protect children? If that's the goal, there are better ways to protect children. What's been really depressing about about all this has been the way it reminds me so much of 
battles that I would have hoped we could have were, were won a long time ago. And again, just because I'm old enough, I remember the Anita Bryant, <laughs> Florida, yeah. uh, you know, uh, crusade in the late 70s. And she was, as I remembered, she was trying to, to keep uh, openly gay teachers out of the classroom. The idea that uh, either she said this or people who were, who were behind her movement made the case uh, that um, gays and lesbians cannot reproduce. So the only way that they can continue to keep their movement uh, growing or you know, sustain itself is by grooming young kids. Uh, it's it's it was it was insane. It's like at teachers the time, are but saying, it's, uh, you know, yeah. you should be gay. You should be you know transgender. It's but just I don't think teachers. Teachers are don't that. have they I don't, don't have time for that. But that was forty five years ago or so, and yeah. there the, we still that that yeah. that thought that idea has not completely gone away, and it's uh, it, it's it kind of blows my mind. I think uh, for historical context, right. Um, these anti-queer ideas and these historic sodomy laws are in general the result of colonialism. Um, and across the globe, there were a lot of indigenous communities where there were a wide spectrum of genders or sexual orientations. And despite the fact that these sodomy laws that came from British colonialism existed all over the world, queer people still exist. So that was hundreds of years during which there was no public conversation about queer people, right? there, It's not being transferred that way. Uh, there's no way to talk someone into being queer. Um, you can't do that. Yeah, well, it goes to the whole idea of the, the term lifestyle, which has driven me crazy for, you know, that, oh, I, I, you know, I, I don't have anything against the person, I just object to their lifestyle. And uh, we never hear straight people having their sexuality referred to as a lifestyle. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's a very strange it's, concept. I think a part of it is Christian nationalism. I mean, it's, you know, it's very, I mean, it's terrible. It's the, the most hypocritical thing for Christians to say, you know, to deem LGBTQ plus people like Satan, basically, is what they're doing. And I mean, it's, it's wrong. You know, they yeah. should, the, what it says in the Bible is you should love each other. Yeah. Right? That's basic. Seems simple. Very basic. Mm. It seems really simple. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the work that Equality Texas is doing yeah. during this session to try to com combat some of these, uh, these bills? Yeah. So we stay busy. Um, <laughs> I would imagine. <laughs> Texas, yeah. uh, we do a lot. So our government affairs team is always at the Capitol trying to educate lawmakers about the consequences of these bills and just really spell it out um, because some of them do get really confusing and they're deliberately written that way. Um, bills that deal with insurance policies and what types of things can and can't be covered. Um, bills that would preempt local non-discrimination ordinances, right? There are some protections here in San Antonio for LGBTQ people. Um, and there are bills that have been proposed that might threaten the, those protections. Um, and so all of that is nuanced and our government affairs team helps lawmakers make sense of it because while we have 140 bad bills on our plate, they've got thousands that are being file, filed, right? So we wanna make sure they understand the bills that are gonna impact the queer community and how they're gonna impact the queer community. Um, but then the other part is also just really making sure that the public voice is heard. So we wanna make sure that our community 
knows what's going on, knows what issues are being discussed, and also knows when there's a hearing Mm -hmm. so that they can show up, they can drop a card. If you're not familiar with what drop a card means, it's uh, sort of a way to vote on a bill, but your votes get thrown away. Uh, but for the legal record, that's important because if these bills get challenged in court, they can see that there was overwhelming public opposition, and that's important. And it's important that we register our voices in that way, uh, like with one of the bills that would ban healthcare for transgender youth, HB 1686, which is the House counterpart to SB 14. Um there were nearly 3,000 people that dropped a card against it, and not even 100 dropped a card for. So I think that shows how Texans in general really feel about these types of issues. And on that day of the hearing, we saw people who traveled from all over the state, people that came down from North Texas, that came out from West Texas. And there were so many people for whom this was such an important issue. Um, And so our role is to just make sure that those Texans know what's going on because they do care. Um, And that's one of the things I love about Texas, right? We really do care about each other. And we're going to show up to make sure that our lawmakers can't do something that would harm a whole portion of our community. Which lawmakers are your biggest allies? And can you give some examples of what they've done? Um, Senator Menendez, our very own, uh, very proud of. Uh, Senator Menendez has been a vocal advocate for LGBTQ rights this session. Mm -hmm. Um, He has spoken up in every hearing, on the floor, um, and it's been very impressive to see him work. Um, I I feel very honored to have him as my senator. Mm -hmm. Um, He's the first one that comes to mind, but the whole LGBTQ caucus has done an incredible job. Uh, Venton Jones, newly elected, has seen some progress with a bill he proposed that would uh, repeal an antiquated law that is now illegal, that bans private same-sex relationships. Um, And so that's on the other side of this, right? There are so many good bills that would update the law uh, and protect the rights that LGBTQ people have, as few as they may be, so that they're not wrapped up in court cases, which, as we've seen, the Supreme Court is very capable of overturning historic precedents. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we wrap things up, I wanted to ask you about something that I've, I've noticed we're seeing in our politics now, which is um, you'll sometimes see people, uh, either activists or media people from the political right, ask politicians um, uh, how many genders are there? It's yeah. kind of uh, with the idea that uh, this is something that happened to Joe Biden when he was running for president yeah. in 2019. He was in Iowa and a conservative a- uh, activist asked him that question, I think with the idea of trying to make him look foolish or maybe have creating a viral moment. Um, ideally, how would you like to see political figures respond if in a debate or yeah. in some interview situation they're asked that question? It's a great question. Um, I mean, my question is, who cares? <laughs> I mean, like, that's the response. Yeah. Why does it matter? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Dropped a mic. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, uh, that's really all. I, I don't understand how someone else's gender impacts mm-hmm. me at all. Um, right? I My pronouns are in my 
my email signature, that's the extent to which I care about gender at all, right? Um, and I think Texans are really respectful of that. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what did Biden say? Um, I think he said there are at least three. And then I think uh, the person uh, was uh, who I think was a staffer of Charlie Kirk's, you know, Charlie, the right wing mm. person. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think she was kind of a plant there to kind of ask him that. And then I think she kind of followed up and he said uh, something like, uh, come on, kid, you know, like, you know, there's, there's, you know, or something. We didn't say stop messing with me. But it was something yeah. like that. Come on, you know, or something yeah. like that. You know, a, a, a real Biden kind of stuff. And uh, I just think it's going to it's going to come up. I, I agree with you. Like, I don't know why politicians should have to be dealing with these kind of questions or. Yeah. But I ha- my sense is that it's, it's going to come up because it's it's. That's the nature of the, the political moment, right? Yeah. Um, Jonathan Gooch, it's been great having you on the yeah, podcast. Thank you so much. You guys. And uh, we hope everyone out there is doing well. Um, early voting starts a week from today. We're recording this on, on Monday the 17th, so it'll be a week from today. And uh, we'll, be, we'll be back next week and be talking a lot more about uh, the local election. Hope you all are doing well. Take care. Thank you.